The Getting Smart team recently hosted a town hall called What's Next in Learning. This live virtual event focused on the trends that we're seeing and expecting to grow in both impact and importance in 2022. We shared examples, highlighted some of our inspiring audience members, and as usual, dropped a ton of links in the chat. You can find all the mentioned resources at the link in the show notes. We recorded the session, and you're listening to it now. Nate, Tom, Rebecca, and Shawnee are members of the Getting Smart team, and they were the facilitators of the session. Hope you enjoy. Today, we're going to talk about what's next in learning for 2022. Here at Getting Smart, we pride ourselves on continuously thinking about the trends, the innovative things that are happening across the country. And we get so excited when we get to talk to you all, talk to the schools, the districts, the states, the teachers, everyone, the people who are boots on the ground um, doing what's best for students. So um, at this Getting Smart Town Hall, we'd like to create a space to collaboratively design, discuss, discover what's next, our time together will um, help to build a collective momentum and understanding and better enable us to empower every learner to thrive and act with purpose, which is what I know you all do every single day. So welcome. If this is your first event with Getting Smart, you know that we start every event off with a poem, and today is no exception. Today's poem um, is called To Be of Use by Marge Piercy. I want to be with people who submerge in the task, who go into the fields to harvest and work in a row and pass the bags along, who are not parlor generals and field deserters, but more but move in a common rhythm when the food must come in or the fire be put out. The work of the world is common as mud, botched, it smears the hands, crumbles to dust. But the thing worth doing well done has a shape that satisfies, clean, and evident. Greek and forest for wine or oil. Hopi faces that held corn are put in museums, but you know that they were made to be used. The picture cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. Thanks, Shani. About a week ago, we posted a, a trend blog for 2022, and we did it in uh, in these categories of sort of mega trends, some emerging trends, things that we're seeing around the edges, and then um, next trends, the early signs that we think are uh, beginning to turn into to, to major trends. And we want to create some space today to uh, to spend time talking about each of these. Um, we're going to combine a, a couple topics, but we'll we'll try to create a lot of space for you to uh, to tell us what what you're seeing. In in general, we're going to talk about the global trend towards uh, expressing new learning goals, broader goals, um, adopting more whole child approaches to education, um, acknowledging that there's um, many competencies needed. Uh, to be a a contributing citizen today, that reading, writing, and math are critically important, but that there are uh, other really important goals that many people are addressing. And and that in turn calls for uh, new ways of learning, particularly active learning. We'll talk about what's happening there. And then the the shift from individual contributor uh, roles in education to much more team Uh, team tools and team staffing. We'll talk about how learning is being measured and and credentialed and uh, finish up with 
learning supports, but uh, let's jump into new learning goals and uh, we'll make a couple of comments on what we're seeing here. Rebecca, you're working with school systems around the country on new learning goals. How are they expressing those? Yeah, sometimes referred to as shared vision of graduate goals, but we're talking about portrait of graduate, graduate profiles, sometimes learner profiles. Um, we also are seeing that called learner goals, common learner goals, such as the XQ learner goals, which we can put a copy of that in, in chat for you to look at. But definitely seeing new ways that that's being visited. Thankfully, though, um, the real work is making those a reality. That's the new phase of the Portrait Graduate. Not enough to do the community vision. It's great. But then how does that unfold and unpack into a K-12 system to make that an actual reality? We talk about this in our blog from yesterday um, about next steps. You have a portrait graduate. Now what? Um, the, re the reconsideration of such goals like this drives many of the trends that we're going to talk about today and why we're seeing a change in credentialing, why we're seeing a change in whole child, the design principles, the science of learning, all of that to look at different meta goals, if you will and active learning. So you'll see how this really drives a lot of the pieces we're talking about today. And we hope eventually it will influence our lexicon around goals and how we support, report, and recognize these. Thanks, Josh, for the um, What Schools Could Be uh, blog. That's another great resource. Um, many of you know portraitofagraduate.org, a great resource from Battelle. Uh, these are hundreds of communities around the country that have engaged in a community conversation about what young people need to know and be able to do. And they've found beautiful ways to express them often visually and shared them on portraitofagraduate.org. Rebecca, I would, would love to hear you um, comment just about, we, we're seeing a bit of fractiousness in education um, in the last few years. Um, has that made it harder to develop a portrait of a graduate, more important to develop one? What, what's your take on the importance of a community engaged process here? Well, it, wonderful. It's a wonderful opportunity. Many of you on, on the call today have been a part of those, if not led them. But as we would all speak to, um, they can become just like a mission on the wall. So I think the reality of what that looks like and how that starts to differentiate was certainly part of the tension of what we experienced in the pandemic. Um, because portrait graduate are often not required to be time bound and they're not necessarily couched in nice content labels. They're really like what's going to happen after high school and in and, and life. And so those have really been drawn upon and ways that those can be used as a system is making those changes. And so you're seeing those learner goals um, become a driving force for curriculum and instruction and learning change. But you're also seeing that show up in different ways to report. And I think a different call to action and what a school day looks like for learners. I also think, Tom, the, that with all the work going on with portraits of graduates around the country and internationally, they're, they're, we should be looking to borrow liberally from others rather than feeling like we have to create from scratch everything from scratch. So coming to a community consensus on what those goals are, but then looking for details that other people have developed yeah. already. We don't all have to do this alone. Yeah. We, we've seen that uh, tension in Kansas City where communities are agreeing on some specific skills in there, but they're also looking at shared re, uh, research around uh, durable skills, um, success skills or essential skills, um, and, and keeping in mind that tension between a local adoption and 
and uh, skill categories that are recognized more broadly. Um, we're going to move into um, later on, we'll talk about skill credentialing. We think that's a big trend that's going to move into high schools this year. And if you're going to credential a skill, you want it to be portable. You want people to recognize it. And so, Nate, that speaks to the tension between you want it to be locally owned, but you want it to be uh, widely recognized to benefit learners. In a sense, it's codifying the portrait of a graduate, right? Like what you're talking about is actually putting it to action. And I think that also requires a revisit to a learning model. It's not enough to say we want different outcomes. You have to also commit to what does that look like then in the classroom and how do we support teachers? Yeah. Jim, Jim Flanagan talked about um, how their portrait kind of stalled given COVID response, just being swamped with running school in a new way. Um, the, the, the importance of social emotional learning um, racial reckoning that happened in our, in, in our country. Uh, Sh Shawnee, I, I, you're probably seeing some of that where it stalled the process, but we're also seeing communities that have really em embraced um, social justice and, and incorporated that into their outcome frameworks, right? Yeah, absolutely. Just the notion of equity and inclusion is becoming more of a global phenomenon, but recognizing that it's easier to set goals than to determine what the measures are that are actually going to make those goals a reality. And so we're seeing more and more people including those equity and inclusion goals into their learning goals and making it a part of their shared values. And more importantly, incorporating them into their learning experiences because putting them to putting them into action is what's really important. And we'll see that more and more as we talk about the act of learning. Um, but we really do appreciate that it's a priority on all facets. And as people are thinking about equity and inclusion, the work can't be done until they start to reflect on their own beliefs, until they start to look around their own environment and ask themselves just within their personal beliefs, are they promoting equity and inclusion? And then how are they bringing that back into the classroom environment? And as you think at the classroom level, how um, how is the curriculum being diversified um, what does equity and inclusion really mean because it goes past race it goes to the people's ability um, to do the work and um, disabilities and things of that nature so it's just really important to um, not have students feel uncomfortable in their environment um, that just to be mindful that the environments that we're putting students in are inclusive and feel safe and that we're not expecting people to speak up <laughs> for all of the equity yeah. um, um, that's going on or who it seems like they are um, and just using a variety of learning styles. So just being really mindful of equity and inclusion and appreciating the work that's being done, but recognizing that uh, we still have a ways to go. Hey, Scott Pasha, uh, Scott's an architect with DLR um, in Kansas City. It's, it's super interesting that you said that equity conversations are becoming sort of moving into the heart of the master planning that you're doing with a lot of districts. Um, that's interesting because at, at that stage, you're not just talking about the academic program, but you're talking about uh, the, what the architecture is and the enrollment pattern and transportation, sort of multifaceted view of equity. Scott, is that what you're hearing? Yeah, that's exactly right, Tom. Not only just access to the programs kind of holistically across the district, but 
um, you know, how do you get to the buildings, um, what neighborhood amenities are within kind of strategic locations within um, the community as well and access to all the, all those components. That's, uh, that's promising. It's encouraging. Scott Ellis is, is doing some POG work. Adrian, um, are you, you feel like you're doing productive work on your portrait of a graduate? Thank you. Sorry, I'm eating my lunch. <laughs> um, yeah, we had excellent uh, work done last year to develop our portrait of a graduate and uh, had our faculty school-wide identify how the different um, tenants in our portrait of a graduate are already evident in their uh, curricula. And oh. our curricula review this year is an advance of our self-study next year for our reaccreditation. So it gives us an opportunity to really lean in to look um, at how we advance that further um, throughout the trajectory of our program pre-K-12. Thank you so much. Uh, Rebecca, and th thanks for the post that you put up um, yesterday on sort of moving from POG to reality. My favorite comment that you got, Rebecca, was, what do we do when our portrait of a graduate runs into the reality of the structure of our systems? Right? Yes. That's, yes. that's a beautiful question. Yeah, I think I just was putting something in chat about that, Tom. You were calling that too. And I think Fadwa was calling that, like, how do you then begin to make those changes? And I think it's really important that once you have those progressions, K-12, they're strength-based, of course, what, that, what those look like. Um, that's wonderful, but if you really want those to be co-designed, I think you start with look force and you look for so teachers can get used to seeing it in their own practice and really have a, a more equitable invite to the table to help co-design those. So they can start to see where those are naturally showing up. And then it'll also highlight areas that aren't currently in your system. So it's basically a needs assessment with teachers and then design a professional learning pathway around that to bring support and your PLC network. So I love that that came up. It's definitely a challenge. And I think the learning model is often overlooked. And in some cases, some districts don't really have a learning model or strategies that they highlight in their professional learning and give language to teachers to, to know what to ask for. So those, those are really important steps to help make it a reality and support teachers in that process. I love that, Nate. Um, let, let's move to active learning, the second category. We're going to combine two and talk about sort of uh, what learning looks like and how we uh, capture and, and communicate it. Um, so Nate, what are you seeing in terms of ways that people are activating these new, uh, new learning goals? Yeah, thanks, Tom. I, I think uh, I'll talk about a few things here. This idea, I mean, many of us are, are playing in the project-based learning realm. It's been around for a long time. And I think the the, the, one of the bigger trends is how do you connect high quality project-based learning to real world experiences um, so that we're meeting the portraits of a graduate in really interesting ways that are authentic for those students and they can see what's happening, uh, often connected to place, um, connected to, to projects that are needed to be done by the community, et cetera, et cetera. So I think high quality project-based learning continues to evolve and develop. Um, and then how to link appropriate authentic assessment within that. Um, and there's so much great support for that in the, in the um, resources that are out there and implementing that well needs good professional learning experiences. Um, also just acknowledging that it, it, 
PBL was hard to do during the pandemic. It was not an easy thing. And so figuring that out um, and re-emerging uh, as we ideally move beyond the, the pandemic into maybe more of an endemic uh, is really important. Uh, the other thing that I would say is uh, we are thinking about unbundling a lot, which, which we have to imagine all these outside learning experiences. And I'll, I'll give a shout out to say OutSchool uh, is one that has uh, experiences that students can register for that are interesting to them from teachers from all over the world or something like Symphony, another platform that is offering week-long internships and projects or problems for students to solve that are authentic and real. And then the hundreds and hundreds of other um, uh, unbundled experiences. And how do we make those an opportunity for students that count, that are uh, Carnegie connected, et cetera. We're still limited by the single credit or half credit Carnegie system. And if we can unbundle these and then allow young allow learners to rebundle these experiences from a huge variety of authorized or uh, providers, we suddenly personalize the system more. And as someone said right in the beginning in this in the chat stream is, we figure out how to keep students engaged, especially as engagement we know drops um, as they move through high school. So, so those are the project-based learning and unbundling are things that, that we are interested in as trends. Um, project-based learning is fairly straightforward because we've been doing it for a long time. It's just commitment. Unbundling requires um, some significant work at the state level to figure out how to, to do that um, from a legal standpoint and, and related to credits. Nate, um, well, two, two quick things. One is uh, this morning, we, uh, Shawnee and I did a, a great webinar uh, with our friends in Kansas City on uh, educating for a climate crisis. And uh, our friends at the Green Schools National Network did this beautiful presentation where they talk about four PBL, uh, focusing on phenomena, uh, place, project, and problem. And I love how they, they use um, local issues, local problems, um, often in their case, uh, focused on climate and sustainability to, uh, to, to frame up problems. So can be as simple as opening the door and uh, going outside and uh, seeing what you can do to make your community better. Yeah, um, and, 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 and New Hampshire and Rhode Island have led the way in sort of you know, these extended learning opportunities where, yeah. where they're allowing a lot of opportunities outside of the normal school walls to count for credit. Um, it just hasn't unbundled beyond the credit yet. So, they, I, uh, yeah. I, I'd love to have you and then uh, others sort of riff on... Um, Unbundling and the implications for equity and inclusion. Um, un unbundling um, worked well for um, kids that are really well supported uh, during a pandemic because parents and caregivers could un unlock lots of learning opportunities. Uh, but it, it strikes me as learning becomes more and more unbundled um, that it, it has the risk of a great inequity that the, the best supported kids will take the most advantage of expanded learning opportunities. Any thoughts from you or anybody else on the call on, on how we sort of rebundle for equity and inclusion and how we expand access to cool learning opportunities and help more kids sort of rebundle them into meaningful pathways? Yeah, Lori, Lori also mentioned that super important who is accessing it. And um, there's yeah. a real risk there. And I, I, my, my, my comment would be, I think one of the things we can take advantage of is the, the uh, push for one-on-one -one tutoring that we have seen as effective during the pandemic. 
that may be a place to pivot into not only one-on-one tutoring around math and literacy, but perhaps coaching um, and helping support students to find really interesting ELOs that are accessible to everybody. Um, so can we, that's just one thought of, can we pivot that idea that seemed to work into providing increased access for these ELOs? Tom, I'm just going to invite Jim to unmute for a second and say a little bit more about what Massachusetts is doing about their learning time waivers. Hi, Jim. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Um, thanks. I didn't mean it as a leading practice, actually. We're, we're probably kind of behind, but, um, you know, even Massachusetts is recognizing the need to rethink um, student learning time. Um, so there's a program out of Cambridge um, that, that has been allowed a waiver there, the, the only program of 12 that, that applied throughout the state. So um, starting to catch up there and um, with some with some new virtual school options too, but I wouldn't put Massachusetts forth as a leader by any means. Thanks. Hey, Nate, in this category, um, I, I called a, an emerging trend, the idea of contribution or difference-making projects that matter to uh, kids and community, um, more education um, driven by student and community um, interest. Um, I, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about some really exciting examples that I saw in Kansas City uh, last month, one at Baser Linwood High School called the Innovation Academy, which is a kind of an a la carte academy where students can step in and do student-driven projects that are often about making a difference in their community. And then a few miles away in Kansas, uh, Notre Dame de Sion Catholic School, uh, really leaning into their mission, teeing up difference-making opportunities for for the girls there. Um, I, I wonder if anybody else is seeing more of that um, student-driven work, work that's connected to community. Is that just my aspiration or uh, are, are, we, are we seeing, will we see more of that? Yeah, I mean, I, my sense is that when, when student agency and learner-centered models are built into the learner, the, 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 the school experience, then that's where we'll start seeing more of those. Um, and it, and it, it does make me think about moving forward in, in our list on active learning and new measures, this idea of microschools and credentialing. Um, Rebecca, I know you had some things to share about that, but just that ties into this idea of how are we allowing students to pursue pathways that are interest of interest to them that allow them to make a difference. Yeah, I think the credentialing piece that we talked about, the unbundling of essentially what is a POG pathway, so I think that makes sense. Um, you highlighted, Tom, the real world learning movement. And, and for those of you in, in the Kansas, that don't know about the Kansas City work, that's that's a common set of agreements around what they call market value assets, which is a, another way of looking at common learner goals, except for this is shared with the community and business at large across multiple districts across two states. And so it's it's a really, a, it, common agreements is an understatement with this work. So there's a real strong commitment and understanding to provide that opportunity so that learners have that exposure and experience, but also businesses can and get a better sense of what students are leaving with and an idea of like how to give back to the schools to help provide more opportunities and internships. So wonderful work that's happening there that I think lends itself to a need, obviously, for some common agreements around credentialing across outside of the district area. So really exciting work that we would love to continue to highlight. And uh, we have some articles on it that you can see now, but we're always bringing them in because I think that it's a it's it's one to look for in, as far as common agreements and common goals. 
And um, Tom mentioned earlier how that's also adding to the equitable opportunities for students. Um, if you don't know a lot about Kansas City, and I'm sure this is true in a whole lot of areas, but the population can be very transient. And so a student who might be in more of an urban school sometimes may transfer to a suburban school or rural school, whatever the case may be, and the experiences need to be the same or as close as they can get. So by using these market value assets through this real world learning initiative, um, it's guaranteeing that every student in the Kansas City region has the same opportunity to internships and entrepreneurial experiences using the same rubric. So regardless of what community they're from, um, what schools they're attending, no longer does their zip code determine um, how successful they're going to be. Michael talked about the importance of internships and apprenticeships. And, and Michael, the exciting thing that Shani was talking about is 75 high schools uh, there in Kansas City committed to expanding access to, to internships and apprenticeships. So we're, we're super excited about that. Jim, we'll, we'll come back and talk about learning platforms in just a minute and, and our general disappointment in that category. Um, let, but let's not talk with about, the great people represented on this call. No, uh, we're, we're, <laughs> we're going to give Shane a shout out in just a minute. Um, I, I want to talk about integrated supports because that it's a, a, a many of you have been involved in, in uh, responding to uh, the mental health uh, crisis of the pandemic. Um, the, the families and kids in need, um, more kids, um, food insecure, housing insecure, uh, just facing um, sharp um, aspects of trauma and the, the soft aspects of uh, protracted um, challenge that, uh, that so many kids are facing. And, uh, and as a result, thousands of schools um, updated and strengthened their multi-tiered support. Our friends at Turnaround for Children, uh, that's Turnaround USA, um, early in the pandemic published a great um, set of design principles that uh, Mason just shared with you. Um, they published a, a, a toolkit on multi-tiered support. And then with um, LPI and others uh, in the in the science of learning and development uh, published designprinciples.org. Um, really a beautiful set of uh, whole school design principles, but really at the heart of that is strengthening supports uh, for kids, identifying and meeting individual needs of uh, students uh, with support in school and then matching them with youth and family supports. Um, out of school and just it's been heartening to see uh, nationwide uh, the, the work that people have done on that front. Accompanying that has uh, just been a, a long-term trend in improving uh, guidance, particularly at the secondary level, um, exposing young people to career opportunities and those secondary learning opportunities and good news and bad news, just like unbundling is the big proliferation of career options and post-secondary options that has just made guidance more and more important. Um, I know a lot of you are scrambling to, to try to update your approach to guidance and equip teachers to really provide really, teachers and counselors to provide really good advice to young people. Uh, Rebecca's had the chance to work with our friends in Cajon Valley, uh, both at the K-8 level, a great career ed program and 
Rebecca, they're now opening a new high school that's going to embed that rich uh, guidance system uh, in a new high school experience, right? Yes, and, and it pulls from a lot of great traits in education reimagined, big picture learning, many that are on this call today. Um, but it's, it's going to be a great example of how the K-8 um, world of work career focus manifests itself in a dual language K-12 commitment. So pretty pretty um, new in thinking and thinking and one to watch. And we'll keep you posted on that with more podcasts to come. But I think what, we'll, what we really notice is that commitment and agreement again with the Workforce Center in San Diego, Tom, which, I mean, there, there again is a nice, strong community support to make this happen and community asking for it. So as that journey unfolds, there are really strong supports and, and participation from the community. Um, yeah, I would also check out workforce.org, really the best example in the country of personalized and localized guidance. We really, we appreciate them as a workforce board and the way they've partnered with Cajon and other school districts in Southern California. Uh, both for learners and for working adults. Since we're talking about workforce, and I see Jack put the comment about successful career fairs for that middle level, is anyone doing that successfully? Anyone preparing middle school students using that sort of techniques? If so, please unmute and tell us about it. Jack, the, we're talking about Cajon. I, I would say that they um, they have big career, um, they have immersive career units, 54 of them uh, from kindergarten through eighth grade. So they've really taken, um, they do some career fairs and they have a beautiful um, career lab that they built in the middle school in conjunction with workforce.org. We have a blog on it that we'll share, uh, but it's a career center and it's a two-gen career center that both middle school kids and their parents can uh, can make use of. So we love that idea. And we love the idea of taking career education and integrating it in an immersive way um, into, the, into the curriculum. Nate, um, you, you were involved in setting up the place network. So these are small rural schools around the country. Um, any examples of how uh, small schools are, are trying to go big in ways of exposing kids to career options, even when you know their local business partnership opportunities might be limited? That's a good question. I, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by, so it, it is a challenge in the rural space. And I think rural, um, rural small schools have long been limited in that area. I think that there are some interesting emerging pieces. I'm intrigued by, I mentioned it before, the symphony. Uh, platform, which is connecting students virtually to organizations that have problems to be solved and small groups teams work on them and they, and they can be anywhere. So that seems to be interesting. The other thing that I saw when we were, when we were um, working in the network is that small communities that rally around things that need to be done in those communities uh, that the students discover. It goes back to difference making and uh, there was one district in Idaho that I was working with that, that built a, a tiny house because that was there was a housing need in the community. And that, that tiny house was then sold at an affordable rate. And then they used the proceeds to build a, um, a, a, a new park in the center of town, a new jungle gym, et cetera, playground structure. So, so the discovery uh, process was, was more robust, perhaps, um, because it wasn't as obvious. There wasn't a surrounding ecosystem uh, in those small spaces. So some options, I think. 
Um, I'll chime in here with, I think in the K-8 space, uh, you know, ideas like uh, people are familiar with novel engineering, which comes out of the Tufts, um, I might get it wrong, the CEEO, the Center for Engineering and Education Outreach. Um, But basically, it's the idea of you read a book, um, so literacy is in there, and then you figure out what's a problem that um, the character has, and then you do engineering design around it, and it, you know, with what you have, right? It can be with like, you know, paper and glue and cardboard and popsicle sticks, or it can be with something more. Um, but I've seen, um, so I'm working with the school now, they're doing um, the boy who harnessed the wind and it's very rural, eight kids, K-8. Um, and they have, you know, different projects for the different age groups and all leading towards, they're going to solve a community problem that they identify. And, you know, there are community problems in this rural tiny town. Um, and so, you know, and the kids will get to decide. So you can kind of go big with it school-wide or can do something, um, smaller. Like, um, another one I've heard of is, um, if you know the book, dragons love tacos. Like how can we design an app? If you're like doing coding, how can we design an app to help the dragons decide if they're going to like the taco? Um, so there's like all kinds of range there and it's grounded. I think it's a very accessible way to get started. Cause there's a whole, cause it's grounded in reading and everyone is learning to read and, um, you can kind of go with, you can go however far, however, like simple and, you know, it still engages kids. And you can also take it um, really far. Thanks, Lori. Uh, appreciate that. Um, let's let's shift to team tools and team staffing. Um, a lot happening here in this space. We pandemic really forced everybody um, to that hadn't to adopt a learning platform. Uh, or at least adopt a, a, a uniform learning platform. Um, that that and and the related trend of moving to uh, to team staffing, I think, is a really historic uh, step in education. Uh, and this is a little bit of an overstatement, but it 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 marks the end of the two hundred year period in many schools where teachers have high degree of autonomy. Uh, to, to much more of a team-based approach with common tools and working together in teams. Um, that doesn't mean uh, a dramatic loss in, in autonomy. It may, it may mean that teams have a level of autonomy, but it does mean more interdependence in more uh, schools on common uh, platforms. Uh, so let's talk about uh, platforms for a minute. Um, Jim asked about these. Uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, still the most widely used learning platform in America is Google Classroom. Uh, This is particularly true K-8. It's not really a full um, LMS. It's really a simple assignment management system, but uh, it's certainly widely used at the secondary level. Um, Canvas from Instructure uh, is probably the, the leading platform. Um, Schoology uh, two years ago was acquired by PowerSchool. Now, now both in, in structure and uh, PowerSchool are, are public companies. They went public like a lot of other uh, tech companies during the um, pandemic and quite widely used. But to Jim's question, 
Um, neither one very well suited to the kind of learning that we've been describing, active project-based learning um, around a portrait of a graduate. So focused on, on a broad set of competencies. Um, neither of those do a great job authoring uh, projects or tracking competencies. Uh, that's why we're a big fan of, of Shane and uh, and his work at um, at Headrush. Anything new at Headrush, Shane? Um, we've got a bunch in motion, but um, I'm excited to be working with you know people like Iowa Big and um, AAI Utah. Those are some new people we're working with. Latitude, Crosstown, XQ Schools. So just honored to be able to serve their needs. They're moving away from things like Canvas, um, Empower, and, and, and um, so we, we feel good about what we're doing because if we can do the right compared to those juggernauts, uh, we think we're not only living to the mission we want to live, but uh, we're serving the people we want to serve. So are you appreciate the call out. Uh, a couple of years ago, I thought of Headrush as sort of a PDL platform. Are, are you uh, closer to being a full function um, learning platform? Well, we are for, you know, we tend to do better with schools that are 500 students or less. And I think that's just because you can build a better culture around the kind of learning model. And so why people that are using Headrush like us is because you can still kind of manage a class as, as a module versus you can do project-based. And we allow that kind of SAMR approach to leaning in. Um, the other part we do well is the ability to um, align competencies interdisciplinary, um, as well as visualize those in different ways um, that a lot of course-based tools, just they're just not structurally set up to do it that way. So to your point, Tom, what we really find is we more schools are trying to unbundle. They're trying to, we call it... Um, De dethrone the course and crown agile as queen is our little internal tagline. So okay. by that unbundling, um, we used to say kill the course, but that that's not congruent with our value system. So we, we changed it. You know, Shane, um, uh, let me interrupt and just say um, thanks for plugging my next blog because um, our, our team is really, we're excited about schools that are trying hard to move away from the confines of courses. I mean, courses have served us pretty well for a couple hundred years of organizing learning and staffing and funding and recording learning. It's all been based on that Carnegie unit, but it's a pretty confining way to architect schools. And we're excited that many of the schools that you talked about are incorporating big blocks to often a double or triple block. And, and there's sometimes uh, at, at Purdue Poly, for example, they're, organizing around skill sprints and projects. So, you know, blended skill acquisition um, and then big client connected projects. And they're, they're using those as the, as the new pillars of the, the architecture of learning. And so it's exciting to see you supporting so many of those schools. Yeah, well, right on. Well, big fan, so of what you guys do to just shine a light on it and articulate it. Cause I think the other challenge for big systems is um, to really prevent them from getting away from brochure run where they have it on their brochure, but then they get away with not really doing anything. And I feel like uh, some of the 
the uh, precision you guys bring to the conversation helps people navigate that. So, Tom, uh, just as a as a, 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 a quick pitch, is that Rebecca and I are, are are dreaming up our next blog post that'll come out in the next few weeks, which is our our own manifesto on on what is the technology we need uh, to to scale POGs and make them real. Um, and I think Headrush is 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 on that track. Um, someone mentioned Area Nine out there and asked about there. They're thinking about that. So there's a few companies. Um, but it hasn't permeated the big players yet. And so I think we need to pay attention to some of the smaller players um, and make sure that we're testing them and using them uh, so that, and and Shane hit it right, is like, we, we need to break down the course wall because that's what's missing. There's no aggregator. And portraits of graduates require technology that aggregates multiple courses together around a single student in easy ways to display progress towards um, developing the learners that we want to develop, so... Thanks, Nate. Um, it, let me just plug Nathan. Um, Nathan and Fielding have been running this beautiful series on design patterns, uh, including one that uh, that went live today. Um, we just love uh, Scott Pasha talked earlier about the, the similar work that they're doing with communities. Just how uh, how these two leading architecture firms are. Um, helping from the ground up, literally um, helping communities reconceptualize um, what secondary schools could be, how they work, um, that support the kind of uh, direction that Rebecca and Nate are talking about. Um, Nate, I, I'd love to have you talk about team staffing. You know, for 10 years, our friends at Public Impact and, and Opportunity Culture have been promoting um, the idea of team staffing, but you you recently have been working with ASU and their next workforce, and they're doing important work on rethinking uh, the, the basic staffing model, right? Yeah, you bet. And I noticed Sarah Rich is on the call, so she might have more, um, more additions uh, after I just give a quick prelude. But uh, yeah, the, the ASU next education workforce is doing some really interesting thinking um, not only around teaming, uh, because because we've certainly seen experiments with team teaching for years and years. So that's not necessarily the new concept, but this concept of um, uh, skill specialization in teaming. So so having different types of educators working together around a larger cohort of students. Uh, they've included community educators as well. So they're thinking about pathways to train community members to be working with our students, which connects with these extended learning opportunities we discussed before. And then that ties into this I, the, the concept of um, personalization. So every teacher having a different skill backpack that would be used for specific groups of students and then combining uh, groups of teachers who have unique skill sets. And, and how do we credential around that rather than general credentials, say around elementary ed or science or for whatever reasons. And so, so really trying to elevate the, the profession uh, to be less generic and more specialized so that everybody's talents can be utilized, just like we would do with personalizing for uh, students and their learning. Sarah, do you, Sarah, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so uh, probably the two teachers that stand out to uh, out to me are uh, teacher, two teachers from our Casa Grande <laughs> campus, and they were very involved in the blended personalized implementation, but needed to take it farther for their students, and so. Uh, that campus is great because we have the accordion walls. And so, you you know, if we want bigger classes, we, we have that flexibility. But we have an ELA teacher and a social studies teacher that have teamed up together. And their blocks are, 
I, I want to say they've moved them to like 120 minutes, maybe even a little bit longer. And they, they integrate both subjects in basically everything that they do. And, you know, it, that's a great thing to do because obviously ELA can get be included in everything. And I think it's also allowed them to have a little bit more flexibility with that one-on-one time or that small group work by having both of them in the classroom. And I think the students have really enjoyed being a part of the journey. So that piece has been really exciting too. They're very transparent about the the time it's taking to uh, prepare for this because it is their first year doing it. And you really have to have leadership that understands that and um, and and we do, which has been a, a great part of that as well. Uh, and but they are seeing a lot of success with it. Sarah, uh, let me also plug uh, our friends at ASU Prep Digital. They they've been working nationally to provide uh, sort of backfill staffing. You know, people are struggling with staffing issues nationwide. Um, sometimes just because you can't hire teachers. Sometimes because. Uh, a teacher uh, has to step out and quarantine um, and ASU Prep Digital has been, has sort of become part of the team at many schools where uh, when a teacher is out, um, they can quickly flip the virtual and, a, and an ASU Prep Digital teacher can step in and cover a class on a short-term basis. So that's the cool thinking that we're seeing from ASU of just thinking about a team um, often with a team leader, so it's a distributed model, um, and that is a porous team that often includes uh, community members and sometimes uh, virtual teachers, but a, a real interesting way to think about staffing. May I add one more thing? Please. <laughs> okay. I was just also thinking, we also have been trying out uh, still having uh, a hybrid model. And we have it now just at the high school and sort of trying to decide how big is that need and do we want to continue it? So we have the digital piece. We also have our kids that are going to school each day. And then we are continuing to try the hybrid model, anticipating that there may be more need for it. And it has been a bumpy road, but the high school one has really taken off. Another thing that I just want to mention uh, that I actually don't know if, if uh, you guys know about Nate and Tom is that we also, if you have a teacher that's leaving because of a situation where they need to move across the country to take care of a parent now or whatever in these hard times that we're having, we actually have um, a teacher who left who now lives in a Midwestern state and he's still um, teaching these students virtually, but we're doing it in a little oh. different way where they have a learning facilitator there. And he was taught about the blended personalized model and was part of that design team. And so uh, my team describes it. If you close your eyes, it seems like he's still in the classroom. And it's not so much that he knew the kids and was connected to them from last year. It's more the way he's delivering his classroom and connecting with that learning facilitator that's in front of them. I think that was at the ASU Prep downtown, downtown campus, right? It's actually happening at Poly. Yeah, it's Joey Hessinger. I think I saw a couple of examples of that on uh, recent school visits. So that that's an interesting, brave new world uh, with kids present and teachers uh, teachers remote. Uh, we had a question about um, teacher prep and um, Nate, since you were talking about ASU and the Mary Lou Fulton uh, Teachers College, the, the question is just around um, required depth of knowledge in, in prep. Um, 
ASU uh, Fulton has such deep uh, partnerships with so many local uh, districts here in, in Phoenix that um, I think that's part of the answer. And any any other answers there? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll say a few things about pre-service and then Rebecca should talk about uh, just in-service and what does it look like when they're already out of school that is a unique learning model and how do you, um, we, we have to think about unlearning before we learn. And, and so from a pre-service perspective, I'm seeing some, inter- many of you know High Tech High and their grad program and they're doing innovative work around, they're, they're teaching to a specific learning model. Teton Science Schools does that as well with their grad program. Uh, and so grad programs and then undergrad, uh, um, I, I've done some, some work in the rural space and, and uh, there's more and more rural university training programs that are focused on what is it like to teach in a rural place um, and, and even advocate, uh, advocate in rural places and, and how to exist. So very specialized type programs. And I think we need to see more and more um, uh, pre-service programs think about the learning models we're all talking about today. Competency, project-based place, project-based uh, learning, place-based, um, uh, portraits of graduates, that all should be routine. Um, but Rebecca, once they have a learning model in place, what is the professional learning like? Um, what, what can schools do in districts? Yeah, I'll be brief because I know we want to give space for people to share. And I also post a link to that version. But I think when you've co-designed a learning model, it's a, it's a quick jump to then co-design professional learning pathways because you've had teachers at the tables and educators at the table the whole time. So helping them understand that. So for example, a personalized approach that many would take would be revisiting their workshop model or their understanding by design or assessment literacy, assessment as learning or for learning, not just of learning. So all of those instructional strategies that we know to be really foundational, revisiting those to see how strong they are actually in effect in the district as a place to start. So you build off strengths and trainings that are already there. And then get a sense for your gaps and the um, transparent progressions of what is expected. See what's not showing up. And you're giving language to teachers to then ask for professional learning or seek professional learning. I think that's the biggest piece. If you really want to give them agency and advocacy, you have transparent look for us from the beginning. And they're invited to be in those discussions and to help create solutions. We, we, we uh, with the University Charter School down in Livingston, Alabama, they, they have created a entire set of um, professional learning outcomes and that and then they're personalizing professional learning around those outcomes so teachers are self-reflecting on those evaluating themselves and then choosing a pathway that makes sense but every plo professional learning outcome is connected to the learning model so any teacher coming into that school knows exactly what 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 to do in terms of building capacity around meeting the learning model which meets the portrait of a graduate uh, th- I, I want to uh, make a quick addition just uh, as we wrap up here. Um, it strikes me that the, the depth of knowledge that teachers most need today is really around learning design um, and how to co-author really powerful learning experiences. The, the challenging and frustrating thing across the curriculum is that more often in this decade, we're going to be working as educators on projects where the answer is, I don't know, how might we? Um, We're we're gonna be working on projects with students that we don't understand, uh, on topics we don't understand, or that nobody understands, that we're taking on projects that don't have known uh, answers to them. I, I was thinking of this during our webinar this morning on climate change. It's so complicated and so new and moving so fast that inviting learners into that space requires a new sense of vulnerability for us as educators 
to say, I don't know, but here's how we might frame a project and how we might learn about it together. Uh, but that, that requires a, a real confidence in co-authoring projects um, and scaffolding it quickly, both uh, with external forms of knowledge and external sources of expertise. Um, for many of us, that's really new work. And I think it's going to become a, a bigger and bigger part of particularly secondary education in this decade. Nader, Rebecca, closing thoughts on, on that front? Well, I think what you just handed us, um, and I'm seeing it come up in chat, is really that leading transformation. Because if we already knew where we were headed, then there would be a, a roadmap to get there. And so really playing off the strengths of, of the work in front of you and then navigating that ambiguity is, is tough for a lot of leaders. So co-designing, co-authoring really gives people a seat to kind of flatten the view and the work. Um, so I really appreciate that that's being called out because we don't always support leaders to be that type. Yeah, and, and I would just call call out what Camille said before is how, how are we helping educators develop these skill sets to be confident, comfortable, um, and tap into to these great, great um, resources that are out there. Uh, and that takes system-wide work, both at the district level, school level, but also system-wide in terms of how are we helping develop educators that are, are ready to meet this new expectation and challenge. Yeah, thank you. Um, if we want kids to lead, we got to let them lead. We got to create more leadership opportunities for youth and keep saying, how might we um, with kids? Hey, we really thank you for, uh, for joining us today. Um, you're either working in a school or supporting people that are. So you've done, uh, you've chosen a good thing to do with your life and just given all the challenges of the last couple of years, we appreciate that you keep showing up here um, at work and uh, at events that we host. So thanks for your input, your insight, your participation. Shawnee, what's next? Yeah, thank you for all the great conversation for all you dropped into the chat. I love thinking about what's next and how do we create those portrait of educator administrators? How do we make the people comfortable? And then what do we do when they're uncomfortable, what we still need to need for them to push through. So great conversation today. Please continue to think. And we will post this town hall as a podcast in our feed. Um, and we'll also post the uh, run this town hall um, as the podcast and do a recap blog with the links mentioned on this event. And then lastly, um, Mason dropped in the, the comment about educator, a, a place where we get to talk to educators about the things that they're doing in the classroom every day. So if you have any guest ideas, please submit those to Mason at gettingsmart.com. So again, thank you. We know you can be doing a lot, but instead you chose to join us today. So we appreciate you. Have a good day. Stay safe. Stay warm. Thanks for tuning in to the Getting Smart podcast today. We want this podcast to be actionable, insightful, and a great way to learn about what's next in learning. In order to stay on the cutting edge, we need people in the field to tell us what they're hearing, what they're wanting, and what they're needing to learn more about. Got a topic or a guest in mind? Send your recommendations to me, Mason at gettingsmart.com. And if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to leave a review in Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. Feel free to share the podcast on social media using the hashtag GSPodcasts. Thanks so much.